meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You, you had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you, you know neither the day nor the hour. And from the fifth chapter of Amos, verses 18 through 24. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your festivals. And I take no delight in your solemn assembly. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your song. I will not listen to the melody of your harp. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Thus ends the word. Amen. I wonder if Amos didn't know a little bit about what singing over Zoom sounds like. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Surely that's all he could have meant by that, right? Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So, despite what Amy said as she as she began this, um, and it's it's truly it's on the top of my page here. I have never liked this parable. <laughs> This is this is what happens when you have two people trained at the same school with slightly different perspectives on things. I have never liked this parable. And I have heard many a sermon on it, as I don't doubt all of you have as well. I have a nose I've preached a few of them myself in eight and a half years here. The whole message of be ready comes up in many different gospel texts and in many different gospel accounts. And it's rooted in the hope that Jesus' assertion about the kingdom and its proximity to us, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, 
which is the very first sermon he preaches in this very gospel, that that proximity is noted in human standards of time, it is an event that will happen to us, not necessarily one that we need to participate in. That's an entire other sermon right there. Catch me in three years when this comes around again. But the question of readiness also has roots in the fears of the communities that surrounded the gospel writers. We need to remember that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were each writing to very specific, distinct communities. It's as though I were telling the narrative of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, to First Church in Rochester with your own particular points of view and your own particular needs and joys and hopes and fears. Except, of course, Matthew's got canonized for all of us. So, hmm. But the question of audience remains. And you hear a little bit of what it was that that particular community, that particular Jewish community outside of Jerusalem in the time not long after the temple had been destroyed, what that particular community needed to hear. Matthew's community had been living its discipleship for a full generation and more through, as I said, the destruction of the temple, but also the oppression of Jewish communities by the Roman Empire in the aftermath of that destruction. And then through the internal conflicts within Jewish culture, within the Jewish diaspora, as they sought a means to respond to what had happened to them and argued amongst themselves over how they would find a path forward perfectly normal human behavior in moments like that. Indeed, the question of preparation was likely far more pertinent to Matthew and to that community than it really had been to Jesus. And setting aside the question of whether or not Jesus actually said any of these apocalyptic parables and lessons, for the sake of argument, we shall assume that he did, the context and framing of how the parables get told is left very much in the hands of the gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Thomas, Mary, whoever. And that is something that the telling of this particular parable makes abundantly clear. Because as Amy Jill Levine, New Testament scholar and professor at Vanderbilt Divinity School notes on a regular basis, and our Bible study will be laughing at me at this point, Jesus doesn't tell allegories. Jesus tells parables. I know it sounds like a semantic distinction. I promise you it is not one. Jesus doesn't tell allegories. Jesus tells parables. He doesn't tell stories that confirm us in our beliefs or uphold us in our rightness. Jesus tells stories that shake our certainty and make us consider very, very carefully where it is that we locate ourselves within the story, whether we should be locating ourselves in that particular place within the story. Story, 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 story. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Needed that one. And where it is indeed as well that we locate ourselves within our own discipleship. The common interpretation, of course, of this particular story is that if you're not ready for God, whenever God shows up, then you're going to be out of luck. 
And that, my friends, that's an allegory reading of this particular text. And the interpretation of it is just a little bit too straightforward to be quite right. But more than that, it really, when you start reading it that way, that you have to be ready or else you might get shut out, that doesn't fit when you actually read it in context. The full context of these 24th and 25th chapters of the Gospel of Matthew and a narrative that circles in on the very, very familiar passage all the way at the end of this huge section. The oft-quoted point that such as you did unto the least of these, you did it unto me. That's where we're aiming for in the end. So when you look at that larger context, it invites the question of who the least were in this story that we heard today. Was it the wise or was it the foolish? We're too accustomed to hearing these passages as isolated stories, as weekly lections here at the end of year A, each of it with its own separate and distinct sermon, so that we take this text on its own at face value and we turn the parable into allegory and we say, the ones who go the extra mile and pack the extra oil that they shouldn't have needed in the first place, those are the elect. And what is more, they are right to have done what they did, keep it to themselves, because if those other bridesmaids had ever wanted to be part of the feast in the first place, then they should have been as overprepared as the wise bridesmaids were because all of their attempts were never going to be good enough. That is not good news. That is not grace right there. That is the story of our world. That is the story of our humanity. That is the story we might even expect to hear on a normal day happening around us in the world, reported by any of the news outlets that we've been obsessively watching all week long. It isn't what we would find in our scriptures. But that it is such a familiar telling and such a familiar idea is perhaps why it is we don't question the way that it is presented to us here as a lectionary citation totally cut off from everything around it. The problem, of course, is that Jesus doesn't tell us the stories of this world. And Jesus doesn't judge us according to human standards of perfection or preparation. The funny thing about this particular parable is that if we, notably, if we took off the end line, the first one's a little wonky too, but if we, if we peel away those, the beginning and the ending of the paragraph, the ones that frame the story as one of judgment and exclusion, then it begins to fit a lot better into the larger context because it becomes a turning point in that larger story, one small parabola in a larger arc of parables which turn all of our expectation upside down, as parabolic stories tend to do. Because this teaching does not begin in this moment. Despite the random, rather randomly assigned chapter break that makes us go from 24 to 25 in that particular moment, Jesus' teachings start in the middle of the previous chapter as the disciples ask how it is that they will recognize the coming of the kingdom of God. 
And that's what sets Jesus onto the question of being ready in the first place. Because there may be huge earth-rending signs and portents, a part of the text that I read very, very differently this year than I ever have in my entire life. Thank you very much. But all the same, there will also be people going about their daily lives, as people do even when the world is completely falling apart. And how we have prepared, how much we have anticipated or sought after the breaking in of the kingdom upon us is how much we will be able to recognize it and be ready to step into it when those little cracks appear. Because as the ancient prophets note, it might not quite look like we think it's going to look like. In fact, the odds are good that it won't. There in the midst of turmoil, it might look like more divisiveness and fear and hard work than it does a light at the end of the tunnel. Rats. It might look more like acknowledging the systemic racism of our culture or undoing our propensity to give men's voices more authority than women's or acknowledge that we only condemn looting when we are the ones whose property is at risk, we who live on, I don't know, looted and stolen land. Because the work of acknowledging all of the power imbalances that exist in our culture, especially the ones where we are the beneficiaries, that is kingdom work. But it is not easy, or joyful, or safe, necessarily. And it really does sometimes feel as though we are fleeing from the lion of the evils that tempted us, only to run smack dab into the bear of the evils we've been participating in all along. Of course, Jesus doesn't say that in quite so many words. Amos did. Jesus doesn't remind us that the rituals and liturgies in which we participate are there for us and not for God. He leaves that up to Amos. Jesus isn't the one reminding us that all of our human celebrations are not ends unto themselves, but ways of leading us forth into the relationship and into the mindsets that enable us to see God and that call us to participation in the kingdom even when it frightens us. Amos, as the good old prophets tended to be, is very blunt. Amos is going to hit us over the head with this as though he had a cudgel in his words. But Jesus, that's not his thing. Jesus really likes to make us get there on our own. So when he needs an example for the disciples of what it means to be prepared and of how we learn to respond to the inbreaking of the kingdom among us, Jesus tells a series of stories, each one building upon the previous, each one drawing us a little closer to the understanding that he wants for us. And he starts by telling us the story of our own expectations. Ten bridesmaids all prepared, some more pessimistically than others, all of whom fell asleep during the wait, all of whom had to scramble at the last minute, at which point one half said to the other half, you're on your own and we are not sticking our necks out for you. Say what now? And in this parable, this little curving story, 
The kingdom of heaven sounds a lot like the world we live in, in which the ritual of the bridal procession determines worthiness for the banquet. Because this parable, this little tale of bridesmaids and oil, is designed to put us on our guard. When Jesus starts telling stories that end as we expect them to, full of people who do the things the way that we do the things, that's when we should probably start to get suspicious that this isn't actually the end of the story and our comfort is not going to last very much longer. Because you see, in the larger parabolic story, of which this is just the first phase, the whole interaction between these bridesmaids, the whole interaction that we have acknowledged and accepted as normal and natural is going to get turned upside down. Because in the next line, we hear the parable of the talents. I'll spend more time on this one next week. In which the servant who took risks with money entrusted to them, who used it and could easily have lost it, these servants are the ones rewarded, while the one who played it safe is condemned. Which seems, in context, a pretty straightforward contrast to those who were unwilling to risk sharing their oil, those who were unwilling to trust in God's providence, those who were unwilling to prioritize righteousness over human rituals and processions. Hmm. But then to drive the point home, maybe Jesus does hit us over the head just a little bit from time to time. We finish on a long discourse about sheep and goats, those who will be welcomed in and those who will be turned away. And all of the comfort that we might have found at the familiar understandings framed in the story of the bridesmaids just evaporates. Gone. Which is very much more in line with the ways that Jesus taught and the ways that parables function, setting us up to expect one outcome and then flipping the entire script and leaving us panting and out of breath. The kingdom of heaven is like bridesmaids, bridesmaids. Tal talents? Oh, no. The kingdom of heaven is like nothing that we have ever known and possibly nothing that's going to make us comfortable in the here and now, and it is like running away from a lion straight into a bear. Ouch. Which might be, in many ways, why it is that Matthew threw in that little line at the end of the lection that we read today. The one that seems to close the parable of the bridesmaids in as its own text, even before someone had come up with the concept of the lectionary, just to set it apart, to cut it off. Because Matthew was writing his account of Jesus in an anxious time to an oppressed community who were beginning to wonder if the kingdom was ever going to come because it had been 30 whole years, people. And that's a long time to wait. They had no idea. Matthew's little community might really have wanted to hear that it was okay that they hadn't managed to convince their neighbors or even their families of the ways of the gospel. He might have needed to hear that it was okay that folks were even falling away from their little community back into normal Roman or Jewish society and into lives that weren't as anxious. Matthew's little community might have desperately needed to hear that they only needed enough oil, enough preparation for themselves in those days of fearful waiting. Matthew's community may have needed the break in the middle of the parabolic arc of these stories because Matthew's community was human. And I know that for so many communities, 
so many human communities throughout the history of Christianity, we have needed that break. We have longed for that reassurance that we can look out for ourselves first, that we only need to share when there's enough, that those who don't have what we do aren't going to receive the kingdom anyway. That's a deeply human need. And as hard as it makes the task of preaching, that that moment of pure human anxiety made it all the way into our canonized scriptures, such that I need to preach on it right here and right now, I can't even be mad about it. Because what the inclusion of that line means for us is that even in the midst of incredible anxiety that changes the meaning of God's word to human ears, there is grace. The rest of the text is still there, just waiting for us to hear it. The whole parabolic arc remains, calling us out of our fear. God's word doesn't leave us, even when we try to make it, even when we try to push it away, because we really just want to function in our own anxiety. God's word is still there, waiting for us to listen closely, to read deeply, to be willing to get uncomfortable, to read through this story of bridesmaids and say something isn't right here and say, we can be better than this. There is grace in the trust that God can still speak even through human anxiety and the permutations of generations of translation and interpretation and even maybe the revised common lectionary. There is, right there in the text, the reminder that God chose to work with us, even when we're afraid, even when we're afraid enough to change God's word. There is right there in the text, the reminder that God chose to work with us, that even though we run from the lion and right into the bear, even though we prefer the rituals and the festivals to the self-examination and courage that the gospel demands of us, God's word and God's love remains, pointing us always towards the rivers and the streams of justice and of righteousness. That, that is good news indeed, because the work isn't done. The work didn't finish yesterday. The work picks right back up today. The kingdom might break in upon us far, far more frightening than we had ever wanted to be asking us to help clear the way for the waters of life to be able to flow freely to all who desperately need them. The kingdom might break in upon us right here, right now, in any moment of our lives, seeking our response to it, seeking our love to come into its fullness and the fullness of God's vision for all of this creation. The kingdom might yet break in upon us, and God believes in us. God believes in our ability to help the kingdom along, whether or not we think we have enough oil, whether or not we think that we are ready, whether or not we think that we are enough. And that's all that has ever been required of us. 
just enough to be ready, just enough to be prepared, but mostly to trust in God, whose grace allows for our humanity to be enough all by itself, even for the coming of the kingdom. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.